Hey mama, we see you. All the visible and invisible work you do for others and yourself. That's why this Mother's Day, the Meditation for Women podcast has a special free guided meditation just for you. Stay to listen to hundreds of guided meditations available for you. Some to help you sleep, start your day, release anxiety, and tune into your intuition. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Mother Country Radicals. A lot of people don't understand the Black Panther Party's uh, relationship with white Mother Country Radicals. What we're saying is that there are white people in the Mother Country that are for the same types of things that we are for. My dad and his friends dedicate themselves full-time to becoming revolutionaries. So we began to do things like learn how to do karate and learn how to shoot pistols and learn how to make dynamite bombs. Weathermen plan a protest, the days of rage, to draw the attention of law enforcement away from the Black Panthers who are being targeted by police. This fall, in Chicago, we will lead massive demonstrations against the war in support of the Black Panther Party and in solidarity with all political prisoners. 200 hardcore members of SDS took to the street. They armed themselves with sticks and chains and rocks. But Fred Hampton, leader of the Illinois Panthers and weatherman role model, disavows the protest. We think it is anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, it's uh, uh, customistic, and that's the bad part about it. Still, behind the scenes, the two groups are working together, sharing resources, trying to figure out a way forward to keep up the resistance and turn it into a revolution. In 1969, after the Days of Rage protests, most weathermen are already under indictment. Many nursing injuries from the riots, concussions, broken bones, and gunshot wounds. My parents are both charged with conspiracy to violate the Federal Anti-Riot Act. My mom is also charged with assault on a police officer, because when a cop grabbed her in the chaos, she need him in the balls. And the police are furious. It just was all happening very fast. I, who hadn't been arrested ever in my life, was suddenly arrested almost weekly, boom, 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 like that, very fast in this period. Police were after us, they were following us, they were stopping me whenever I was in a car. One night, a bunch of detectives break into a member's apartment for a round of questioning. They hang him by his ankles from a third-story window. Other weathermen, arrested at a demonstration in the fall, are taken to a precinct where police officers stick revolvers in their mouths, force them to watch their friend get pistol-whipped until he has multiple skull fractures, and his face is covered in blood. In a way, they had succeeded in their goal of drawing police attention away from black activist groups. But it isn't enough. In 1969 alone, police killed 27 Black Panthers, arrest 700 others. Angela Davis says it was government policy at the time. And we know now from the documents that have been revealed that there was an explicit design uh, to uh, destroy the Black Panther Party. J. Edgar Hoover, who said my mom was the most dangerous woman in America, calls the Panthers the greatest threat to the internal security of the country and assigns thousands of agents to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, and otherwise neutralize them. The Panthers are under attack, and some Panthers are willing, even eager, to fight back. 
Like SDS, the Black Panther Party is in the process of splitting into factions over questions of revolutionary violence. What comes next? How far are we willing to go? Are we building a mass movement or a militant armed resistance? And just like the Weathermen, there are some Panthers inside the larger organization who want to escalate that conflict, bring the war home. The Panthers' breakup would ultimately give rise to their own radical splinter faction, the Black Liberation Army, or BLA, a group that would shape the future of the Weathermen and my family for decades to come. A group so important to my parents, they named me after one of its members, Zaid Malik Shakur, who was killed in a shootout with New Jersey State Troopers a few years before I was born. When I was a kid and my mom went to jail, she was locked up in Manhattan's Metropolitan Correctional Center alongside a group of BLA members, Zaid's comrades and friends. All of them, including my mom, alleged accomplices to the same crime. We called each other comrades, and we called each other brothers and sisters. Jamal Joseph is a member of the New York Panthers, and later the Black Liberation Army, one of those who was locked up with my mom in MCC. And so we would hear about things that the Weather Underground and the White Underground was doing in solidarity to the, to the attacks that were happening, uh, in particular uh, to the Black Panther Party. And we felt like right on. So the New York Panthers, the people who would form the core of the BLA, are important to this story. Important in ways that weren't clear to me before I started working on this project. When historians write about white militants, they spend a lot of time trying to understand what makes them tick, what radicalizes them. But the motivations of black revolutionaries are often treated as a given, as if black radicalism is natural, not requiring explanation. But not everyone chooses to be a revolutionary. It's an unusual path, no matter what your skin color. And while the stories of black and white radicals are different, there are also surprising points of contact, threads of connection. So what leads Jamal Joseph into the underground? And how would he and my mom, two people with very different experiences of America, be radicalized by the same tragedy and wind up jailed together after the same crime? This is chapter three. I am a revolutionary. Long before he ever met my parents, Jamal Joseph, called Eddie at the time, is a 15-year-old kid growing up in the Bronx with his grandma, whom he calls Noonie. And April 4th, 1968, is a turning point in his life. Jamal is at a youth center in Harlem after school. He's doing his homework, talking to friends. It's like any other day. He heads home that evening towards his grandma's house, but... There was shock in Harlem tonight when word of Dr. King's murder reached the nation's largest Negro community. I heard sounds of people yelling and screaming and saw some fires, and so I ventured on to 125th Street and got caught up in the middle of the rebellion. All over America, black ghettos exploded in rage and grief. In some Negro ghettos, there was looting, arson, and bloodshed during the night. Police report that the murder has touched off sporadic acts of violence in a Negro section of the city. Jamal's just watching the chaos at first. He's too young, too nervous to break windows or burn cars. He's inside a store when the cops show up. Cops came in, beating people and shooting at people, and I ran out the back of the store. 
made it to an alley and hopped over a fence. Cops are still chasing me and ran into this wall, literally this wall of black men who are on community patrol. And they told me to stop running. They stood between the cops and I. The cops said, we're chasing looters. They said, there are no looters and we're a community patrol. Trying to make sure that no innocent black folk gets killed out here tonight. It's a standoff. And then, they backed the police down. I had never seen that kind of organization and that kind of strength in terms of backing down the cops. Jamal is amazed. Decades later, you can still hear the excitement of that 15-year-old kid. I was like, they got black leather coats, they got guns, they communists, they crazy. I want to join them. <laughs> It actually reminds me a bit of my mom watching Muhammad Ali back down the sheriffs at the eviction in Chicago. She and Jamal are different races, different genders. She's in her 20s and he's 15. But for both of them, seeing someone take action, stand up against an unjust system and win, it opens up a new range of what's possible. It could turn anyone into a radical, maybe especially a 15-year-old kid. A few months after Dr. King's death, Jamal shows up at Panther headquarters in Brooklyn. Older brothers and sisters are looking really, really cool with their leather coats, army fatigue jackets, fro. Some of the sisters had their African head wraps. Someone begins a political education class, explaining the 10-point program, what the Panthers stand for. I think the brother's on point number five, which is about education. One education that teaches us our true history and the true nature of this decadent American society. I jump up, choose me, brother, arm me. Whole room gets quiet. Brother says, come here, young brother. Jamal walks up to the desk. The man reaches down into a drawer. I'm like, oh, man, look how far out he's reaching. He's going to give me a big-ass gun. And he hands me a stack of books. Autobiography of Malcolm X, Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, Wretched at Earth by Franz Fanon little red book. And I said, um, excuse me, brother, I thought you were going to arm me. And he said, um, excuse me, young brother, I just did. Jamal goes back to his seat, and he's looking around. There's a poster of Che Guevara up on the wall with a cigar in his mouth, smile lines around the eyes. I actually had the same poster up in my bedroom when I was a kid. Che was an icon for the weathermen, too. And the quote is this, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, let me say that revolutionaries are guided by great feelings of love. That was the beginning of kind of real regularization and that big step toward manhood by joining the Black Panther Party. Pretty soon, Jamal is spending all his time with the New York Panther group. Lumumba and Asada Shakur, who would later become a leader and a symbol of the BLA, Daruba bin Wahad, Zaid, and Afeni Shakur, Tupac's mom, and Yewa, Jamal's section leader, his mentor. Yewa's a Vietnam vet, an experienced housing organizer. He's 26, my mom's age, an elder by Panther standards. Ten years Jamal's senior. And he's hardcore, even for this group. If we were Going someplace, Yewa would be, we don't have to pay, we're the Black Panther Party. And you get 25 Panthers jumping the train. 
And when the pigs came, he would be like, the subway belongs to the people, motherfuckers. What you going to do? He was that guy. One day, Jamal gets an anonymous letter in the mail, threatening his grandma. He thinks the letter might have come from the cops. He asks the Panthers what he should do, and Yewa gives Jamal his first gun. To actually get to hold one, honestly, was scary. I realized that this thing could kill. And it was handed to me with so much caution and so much warning. They've made clear that if you make a mistake, you would hurt an innocent person or one of your comrades. But the New York Panthers think they have to protect themselves and their families from death threats and police violence, from a whole racist system that puts them at risk. That's why it's called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And yeah, we did do some midnight drills and we did run through Central Park and we did hand-to-hand combat and we did, you know, some gun range kind of stuff. This is the same time my parents and the weathermen back in Chicago are gearing up for the days of rage. Same training, too. Jogging in the park, martial arts, target practice. Both groups think they're prepping for war, training to be urban guerrillas. They're also reading the same books, watching the same films, Wretched of the Earth, Battle of Algiers, the mini-manual of the urban guerrilla. Both groups are looking up to the Cuban government in Havana and third world revolutionaries overseas. And around the same time my dad is giving up teaching because he feels he has to organize against the war full time, the Panthers are taking up so much space in Jamal's life, he doesn't have time for anything else either. He's doing worse in school, no longer helping around the house. His grandma notices, but doesn't know what to make of the change. Why are you so busy? I got basketball practice, Grandma. I got karate practice. I got football practice. You would think I was like a three-letter athlete. Wasn't on team the first. (laughs) But just making up stuff, right? One day, she's cleaning Jamal's room and finds something under his bed. Where most 15-year-olds might have some, you know, girly magazines or, you know, their cigarettes hidden or whatever the case. I've got a box full of radical material. Jamal walks into the room, sees his stack of books, a Bible, and a belt. She says, tell me the truth right now because I don't know whether to bless you with this belt or kill you with this Bible. He admits he's been spending all this time with the Panthers. And she tells him he's going to quit. No discussion. Jamal shows up at the office the next day to tell the others, these 18 and 20 and 22-year-olds he idolizes. And of course, he's embarrassed, talking tough to show he's not some mama's boy. My grandmother's tripping. She's brainwashed Uncle Tom. And a fainty did a Bruce Lee move on me. It's like she jumped in my chest with both hands and both fists and snatched me by the collar. And she said, don't ever talk about your grandmother like that. She said, when we're talking about organizing people in the community, who is your grandmother but the people? And this is your fault for not being honest. Totally not what I was expecting. And then Yewa says, let me go talk to her. Yewa shows up at the house wearing a tie. The first time Jamal's seen him dressed up like that. He sits down with Jamal's grandma for a talk. He said, ma'am, I know he's giving you some problems. I'd like to keep an eye on him. If you say that his curfew is 10 o'clock, if he's not in here at 9.30, just let me know. And I'll beat his butt. If you want him to bring you an 85 on the next algebra test and he doesn't walk you a 95 in the door, I'll give him a swift kick. And Grandma says, you know, 
he never knew his daddy, and his grandfather died a few years ago, and it is so hard raising a boy alone. But you seem like a very nice man. So if you promise to keep an eye on him and make sure he does the other stuff that he need to be doing, I'll let him go back. And so I went back. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. With his grandma's blessing, Jamal is getting more and more involved with the Black Panther Party. And now things are moving fast. Within a few months, Jamal is appointed leader of the Panther Youth Group, training the high school recruits. He's reading radical literature, carrying a gun, helping out with the volunteer programs. At 15, he feels like a young revolutionary in training, a part of something bigger, more important than himself. And then, one night, everything changes. April 1969. A tactical team of cops with bulletproof vests and shotguns kicked in grandma's door at four o'clock in the morning and dragged me away to prison. In New York City, 21 members of the Black Panthers have been indicted and the police said that broke up an elaborate plan for destruction. And when I got there, there were other Panthers, the Lumumba Shakur and the Faini Shakur and Daruba and Setuweo. They said the Panthers had planned tomorrow morning to bomb five New York City department stores crowded with shoppers, to bomb a police station, and to dynamite the tracks of a commuter railroad passing through Harlem on the way to the suburbs. A reporter asks Bobby Seale, Panther National Chairman, whether this alleged plot in New York is part of an official Black Panther policy. You can hear Bobby dragging on his cigarette, disgusted by the question. I don't, uh know what the hell they're talking about. Uh, they're lying. They're trying to destroy the leadership of the party, and uh, they're trying to destroy the Black Panther Party. They know the Black Panther Party is a moving force for the revolutionary struggle that's going on for change. Uh, the, pig- the 21 New York Panthers are charged with 156 counts of attempted arson, attempted murder, and criminal conspiracy. Bail ranges from $50,000 to $100,000 each. $100,000 is like $700,000 today. Might as well be 700 million. Jamal can't make that bail. None of the Panthers can. So now they're spending months in jail, waiting for trial. So I just got dropped into the middle of the wolf den. No context for anything. 
He's 16 when he's sent to Rikers Island. And I was like, man, I got to fight this dude. Then I passed another cell. I said, I got to fight this dude, that dude. Man, it's going to be war from morning till night. Jamal and the others are charged with conspiracy to murder New York police officers. A plot to blow up police stations with dynamite bombs and then wait outside with long-range rifles to pick off officers as they flee the building one by one. I'm hearing on the news that we were facing 360-some-odd years. But the case is based almost entirely on testimony from three undercover police who had infiltrated the New York Panther chapter. They claim all that training the group was doing, the jogging, the martial arts, the target practice, was actually preparation for mass murder. And one of those undercover cops is someone Jamal knows well. Yewa, my mentor, the person who came to my grandmother's house and convinced her to let me come back. Yewa isn't just a mentor. He's the guy always pushing the group forward urging them to more militant action. The one who tells them they don't have to pay to ride the subway, who talks to Jamal's grandma, gives him his first gun, and the whole time he's been setting them up. I was devastated because he really was a big brother and a father figure to me. While Jamal is trying to wrap his mind around the betrayal and trying to stay alive inside Rikers, outside, the Panthers' allies are organizing. The next time back to court, when I'm riding in that van and I'm hearing all this chanting and I peek through the little strip and I see Foley Square and Center Street, which is where the court buildings are in downtown New York, filled with people, black and white. I'm here to get these men and women out of jail for asking for what is their right. Chanting, free the Panther 21. Power to the people. That's when it first hit me, and that's when I felt solidarity and really proud to be part of this Panther 21 case. The Panther 21 have become a symbol of the American injustice system weaponized against the movement. Supporters, black and white, mobilize across the country, attending protests, raising money. Alternative newspapers write articles about the trial. People at demonstrations and meetings hand out leaflets and collect money for the defense. In fact, it was a fundraiser for the Panther 21 at the home of composer Leonard Bernstein that inspired Tom Wolfe's famous essay on Radical Chic. J. Edgar Hoover has already directed his agents to prevent the long-range growth of militant black organizations, especially among youth, to pinpoint potential troublemakers and neutralize them before they exercise their potential for violence. And most important, to prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. And if there's one leader who does just that, unify and electrify, it's Fred Hampton the leader of the Illinois Black Panthers. Fred was always this mythical brother uh, that we would all hear about. Back in New York, teenage Jamal Joseph listens to Fred's speeches all the time, on tape cassettes shipped out to local Panther chapters, the social media of the day. Fred uh, would 
use that rhythm that they used and still use in the black church. When I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a And it's not just Jamal. The weathermen are listening to Fred, too. Even after their disagreement over the days of rage, weathermen attend his reading groups in Chicago. They discuss strategy, share resources. Laura Whitehorn is a member of the Chicago Weathermen at the time. You know, like Malcolm X, he spoke for and to thousands of people at a time. We say all power to all people. Black power to black people. People from every age would get out on the fire escapes to hear him speak. It's power to booze and be left out. We say Panther Power is the Vanguard Party. Even in private, in small, intimate gatherings, Fred's every bit as charismatic, as convincing, as when he's talking to huge crowds. There's a video of him having a conversation with a few young guys, sitting around a small table, maybe at the Panther office. He's wearing a bucket hat and has a scraggly beard, and he explains why they need to understand the bigger picture. With no education, the people who take this local foundation start stealing money because they won't be really educated to why it's the people's thing anyway. You can hear him jab the table a few times with his index finger, emphasizing his point. But it's all friendly. As a matter of fact, we are so important with us that a person has to go through six weeks of our political education before he can consider himself a member of the party, able to even run down ideology for the party. Why? Because if they don't have an education, then they know where. You dig what I'm saying? They know where, because they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. And this is what Jamal loves most about these recordings of Fred. His dedication to learning, teaching, showing people how to move forward. There's a quote that Fred has that I still use. People learn two ways. You learn through observation and participation. And we're going to be the example that people can observe so they can participate in their own liberation. Teenage Jamal would stretch out and listen to these recordings, taking in as much as he could, imagining himself in the crowd listening to Fred. I learned a lot when I was in prison. I had an educational process, a learning process. You have to understand that you have to face Christ in peace. If you dare to struggle, you dare to win. If you dare not to struggle, then goddamn it, you don't deserve to win. Let me say peace to you if you're willing to fight for it. But it's not just Jamal who's listening, not just the other Panthers or weathermen or activists across the country. The FBI is listening to Fred, too, and paying close attention. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So now it's December 1969, two months after the Days of Rage. Jamal's still locked up in Rikers. And back in Chicago, the Panthers and the Weathermen are under attack by police. 
Fred Hampton is facing charges for allegedly hijacking a good humor ice cream truck. Literally, those are the charges. Somebody might give me 20 years for ice cream truck robbery. Robbery of ice cream with intent to distribute to poor black kids in Chicago. Even though they made me a thief, they made me a Robin Hood type thief. 710 ice cream bars. I might be big, but I can't eat 710 ice cream bars. We talked to Jeff Haas, Fred's lawyer at the time. He remembers Fred was struggling that month with what he should do next. He was going to either have to go back to prison to serve the rest of his two to five years for supposedly stealing ice cream from an ice cream truck or go underground or leave the country or something. So on Thursday night, December 3rd, Fred hosts a political education class. The class ends around 9.30 p.m. Fred invites a few people back to his apartment nearby. They have dinner. William O'Neill, the head of his security detail, makes them all some Kool-Aid. About 10 Panthers went to the uh, Monroe Street address and had dinner and Kool-Aid before they went to sleep. Fred is supposed to stay at his mom's house that night, but it's late. He goes in the bedroom with his fiancée, Deborah Johnson. She's eight months pregnant with Fred's child. And so sometime around midnight, Fred had called his mother and said, I won't be coming home tonight. Just keep my food on the stove. Uh, And then while he was talking to his mother around midnight, he actually fell asleep on the phone. Mark Clark, a 22-year-old panther, is on security detail, in a chair facing the door, holding a shotgun. Around 4.30 a.m., Doc Satchel, a panther who was also there that night, Here's a knock at the door. And it was only a matter of seconds, less than five seconds, that I heard, you know, shots. Mark Clark is hit. His shotgun goes off and takes out a big chunk of the ceiling. Back in the bedroom, Deborah wakes up. She sees lights flashing. Still half asleep. I looked up and I saw bullets coming from it looked like the front of the apartment, from the kitchen area. They were, pigs were just shooting. She later remembered that night. This is after she gave birth, and she's cradling her baby, Fred Jr. You can hear him cooing in the background. The mattress is just going. You could feel the bullets going into it. I just knew we'd be dead, everybody in there. Um, when he looked up, just looked up, he didn't say a word, and he didn't move. From moving his head up. He laid his head back down. He never said a word. He never got up out the bed. Uh, the person who was in the room, they kept calling out, Stop shooting, stop shooting. We have a pregnant woman, a pregnant sister in here. Pigs kept on shooting. So uh, he kept on hollering out. Finally, they stopped. They pushed uh, me and the other brother by the uh, kitchen door and told us to face the wall. Heard a pig say, he's barely alive, he'll barely make it. So then they started shooting the pigs, they started shooting up, shooting again. I heard a sister scream. They stopped shooting. Pig said, 
He's good and dead now. The next day, the state's attorney, Ed Hanrahan, gives a press conference. The immediate violent criminal reaction of the occupants in shooting at announced police officers emphasizes the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party. So does their refusal to cease firing at the police officers when urged to do so several times. But physical evidence at the scene shows the cops are lying. Chicago police had fired at least 90 shots into the apartment. The Panthers fired only once, from Mark Clark's fallen shotgun. And through all the gunfire, all the screaming, Fred Hampton never wakes up. The autopsy shows cecobarbital, a sedative, in his system. William O'Neill, the panther who made the Kool-Aid that night, turns out he's also an FBI informant. Fred had apparently been drugged on the orders of federal law enforcement and assassinated by the Chicago police. News starts to travel fast. My dad hears about it in the morning. I think it was Jeff Jones who said to me, um, get up, Fred's dead. They go to the apartment where Fred was killed. It's a crime scene, but the Chicago Panthers keep it open to the public. Don't touch nothing, don't move nothing, we want to keep everything just the way it is. A memorial, an evidence against the police, the bloody mattress and all those bullet holes going in and nothing coming back out. Brother fell here, most of the blood is dried up, but you can see a little bit of it there and a little bit of it on the floor. The brother was shot four or five times, so after they came through the door, they shot him again to make sure he was dead. A few days later, Bill shows up for Fred's funeral. It was an open casket. Lines stretched around the block, and by the time I got to the casket, it was filled with money, with tokens, with... um, emblems of revolutionary thought. And I put a ring that I had from Vietnam, and I put a ring in the casket. It's clear now, after MLK, after the Panther 21, after Fred Hampton, that black groups, black leaders are being targeted, facing not just political repression and infiltration, but violence and terror and assassination. I was, you know, in a rage at the absolute stench of American life. It wasn't the first certainly a person who was killed, but it's the first person that close to us that was killed. And um, we were young, we hadn't experienced death a lot, and um, it was overwhelming. It pushes the weathermen over the edge. You can hear it in my mom's voice a few days after Fred's death. For people to be able to enjoy Christmas time in this country without remembering and without making a choice about the struggle that's going on in the world, without taking action about a blatant murder that takes place in the city against a revolutionary black leader is an obscenity. Kathy Wilkerson, a member of Weathermen and Terry's girlfriend at the time, had been on the verge of leaving the group earlier that year. Sick of the criticism, self-criticism sessions and the long meetings that never seemed to go anywhere, she's not sure if she wants to stay in the organization at all. But Fred's death changes her mind. Terry picked up the phone and said, oh my God, Fred has been killed. And I, I felt like at that moment, my world turned 180 degrees. And I felt like, uh, okay, it was now open warfare. This was Germany in 1939. 
and they were going to go around and kill all the black leaders. I had to dedicate my life to responding to this. Uh, it didn't matter that it didn't make sense. It didn't matter that it was unpleasant. Uh, this is what I had to deal with. And if somebody said they had a way to deal with it, I would follow them. Weathermen are determined to avenge Fred, to draw the government's attention away from the Panthers, make it impossible for police to keep killing black people with impunity. Their first response comes two days later. From the Chicago Tribune, December 6, 1969, a black powder bomb exploded on the front of a police squad car in a parking lot early this morning, causing damage to the car and breaking 20 to 30 windows of nearby apartment houses. Their actions are escalating. First statues, now police cars. And my mom knows if they continue down this path, there's no going back. So she visits her parents. She needs to tell them. Just how much I love them. I couldn't say anything to them because I knew they were would be under pressure. And I, I didn't know what was going to happen next. But I, I felt that they... Um, no, they were great. I was so lucky to have them as my parents. So I flew to Florida just for maybe a day or two, maybe two nights. And we walked around. I ate grapefruits off their tree in the backyard. I was happy to see them happy. And then I remember they wanted to drive me to the airport. You know, it was one of those airports that was like three stories up on an escalator. And they let me go at that point. They didn't come farther than that. And so I, you know, watched them recede. And they were waving, and I was waving and blowing kisses. You know, I was in tears, and I felt like I uh, I wasn't conflicted. I knew what I was going to do, but I I didn't want them to be hurt. Of course they were. My dad has already said goodbye. Remember when he meets his father at a steakhouse and my grandpa Tom tries to tell him he's making a big mistake, throwing away his life, his future? Bill doesn't listen. After Fred's death, he's not even sure he has a future. Because I couldn't, I couldn't think of another way. I couldn't think of a way to go that avoided the possibility of death. I guess that's the way of saying it. You know, the, the only choice that avoided the possibility of death was completely selling out, and I wasn't interested, and I didn't want to do it. I just felt like if that's the choice, if the choice is that stark, I would rather risk death. A couple months later, in the middle of the night, on February 21st, 1970, gasoline bombs explode all over New York City. One is thrown at a patrol car parked in front of the Charles Street Police Station in Greenwich Village. Two more target military recruiting booths near Brooklyn College. And three bombs explode outside an elegant Tudor-style home in Inwood on the northern tip of Manhattan. The house belongs to John M. Murtaugh, the judge presiding over the trial of the Panther 21. John Murtaugh Jr. is nine years old at the time. In an interview with Fox News, he later remembered, uh, I was sound asleep in bed. Our whole family was sound asleep. First thing I remember is waking up, no doubt from the sound, uh, my mother coming into the room, pulling me out of bed. 
The bombs are bottles filled with gasoline, with two-inch firecrackers attached as detonators. They shatter a front window of the house, char the paint on the car parked in the garage, and ignite the hanging wood eave outside. Uh, I remember standing in the kitchen with my parents, with my family. Uh, We could see flames through the window. Uh, You're stuck in a burning house, but you're not sure whether it's safe to leave. Eventually, the fire department arrives and gets the family outside. Nobody's hurt. And as the sun rises in the morning, the family, firefighters, and police outside can see graffiti scrawled on the sidewalk in bright red paint. Kill the pigs. The Viet Cong have won. And free the Panther 21. It's the weatherman's first attack on a civilian target. The New York cell is crossing new lines. Violence not just against statues or parked police cars, but people. Again, that brutal logic of escalation. If the United States is willing to kill Fred Hampton in his bed, why should we stop at symbolic violence? Why not fight fire with fire? In fact, the New York cell is gearing up for something bigger, something worse. We'll get to that in the next episode. And what about Jamal Joseph? He's turned 16, still locked up in Rikers, when he hears about Fred. It was a moment where there was no words. Everybody just was heartbroken and silent. And then we gathered and and said a revolutionary prayer for Fred and for his family. Fred Hampton is with the ancestors, and we make a commitment to continue his work in the spirit of the people. Dr. King's assassination made Jamal a radical, but Fred's murder would make him a soldier. His death meant, I think, more than any other thing that had happened to the Black Panther Party, uh, that we were seriously at war. The war they'd been training for, the war between Black liberation and police repression, is already here. It convinced me that I was going to be dead before I was 21. It convinced me. I used to say that to people. You can hear the same change in all of them. Bill, Jamal, Bernadine. They're still kids in many ways, in their teens and 20s. But after Fred's death, none of them expects to live much longer. Fred had become a martyr for a generation of young activists. His death taught them they were entering a new stage in the struggle, requiring a new level of dedication and sacrifice. If you actually make a commitment at the age of 20, and you say, I don't want to make that commitment on the and his words seemed prophetic in hindsight about what was coming next for all of them. I don't believe I'm going to die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm going to die because I got a bad heart. I don't believe I'm going to die because of lung cancer. I believe that I'm going to be able to die what I was in the, in the thing that I was born for. I believe that I'm going to die high off the people. I believe that I will be able to die as a revolutionary in the international revolutionary post-tan struggle. And I hope that each one of you will be able to die in the international post-tan revolutionary struggle. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't you die for the people? Next time on Mother Country Radicals. We were all terrified. 
and none of us knew what we were doing. Sixty sticks of dynamite, thirty blasting caps, and assorted wires and pipes in the basement wreckage. The weathermen escalate again. They said it had been used as a bomb factory by young radical left-wingers. There was no discussion about it, what it would do to human beings. I think she was completely carried away. I think it was almost an intellectual hysteria. We were racing forward, really on speed and adrenaline, nothing else. I think it's important, you know, to remember them and remember, you know, some of the worst of what happened, what we did. Mother Country Radicals is an original podcast from Odyssey and Crooked Media. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn, your host, writer, and executive producer. From Crooked Media, executive producers are John Favreau, Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta, with special thanks to Katie Long. From Dustlight, executive producer is Misha Youssef. Arwen Nix is our executive editor. Ariana Garib-Lee is our senior producer. Stephanie Cohn is the producer. Ty Jones is our historical consultant. All three also helped with writing on the series. This episode was sound designed by Ariana Garib-Lee. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Andy Clausen is the composer. For Odyssey, Tim Clark is head of audio content. Lindsey Grant is head of platform marketing. And Brian Swarth leads podcast marketing. Special thanks to Melissa Providence, Lizzie Roberti Denahan, Andy Slater, and Danny Kutrick. Thanks to our development and operations coordinator at Dustlight, Rachel Garcia, apprentice Shamari Kirkwood, and Mark Wilkening, and the team at Chicago Recording Company. Mother Country Radicals is an Odyssey original podcast.